three weeks holiday. I just thought it was a wee skip in Nathan's step there as he came down there. So yes. Okay, we're just going to uh, hear from God's word now. So I ask you to turn in your Bibles to John 19. Just reading from verse 1. Continuing in this trial of Jesus, we read that then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Let's just come and pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for this day and for this opportunity to focus on you. And Lord, we focus on you in a a needy and hurting world. We remember today the anniversary of of 9-11 and we think of families and others who are still suffering as the result of that, still working through grief, we think of the many, many thousands upon thousands upon thousands who've been injured in, in years since that as a result of the conflict that this gave birth to. And Lord, today we want to pray that in some way that even an anniversary like this might bring a fresh impetus for peace. We ask that you work in the hearts and minds of those who are set on war and Lord, give in them a yearning for peace. Father, we just thank you for being part of this family and we want to remember today uh, Linda, who's been with us 
over this past year and a half or so from Kenya. Just thank you for the time that she's spent here. Thank you for the friendship she's made. And Lord, we pray for her that as she returns back home to Kenya, that there she'll be able to faithfully serve you, that you'll keep her and protect her and provide for her in every way. And Lord, now we pray for ourselves and ask that as we come to your word, that you might feed us with your truth. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, looking at this passage this week, I started thinking about moments. That's what it got, what it got me to, you know, those significant standout points in time. And then my mind being what it is, it took me back to all sorts of, of different places. I'm just going to have a wee memory here that this sparked off for me, if that's okay, Ewan. Here we go. Moments, remember. Yes, very significant, lots of great adverts, you might remember that, but I just want to share with you the memory that that sparked off for me. I may well have told you this before, it was of one Christmas when somebody bought me a big tin of Quality Street. And I have to say, I was very happy about this, and I'd shared quite a few times that I was looking forward with probably sinful, gluttonous anticipation to eating those sweets. Now, Elaine, as she often does, felt that we'd been given too many sweets that year, but I disagreed. You know, for me, I thought, what a foolish thought. When can you ever have too many sweets? The Sunday after Christmas, we went along to the morning service at, at Peterhead Baptist Church, and I was at the front leading the service, unable to do anything, when suddenly Elaine got up. And do you know what she did? She passed the tin of Quality Street round the whole congregation. Finally, a little boy in the church brought the tin back to me, and I looked in it. It was empty. I didn't even get one. How the congregation absolutely loved the kind of attempted hidden but still there look of shock and disappointment that was on my face. Now, if you think that that's a hint for Christmas, then let me just make myself clear. It is. <laughs> but what we're now going to look at together tonight is actually something of an entirely different altogether, a different order altogether. It's here and now in this section in John's Gospel, we seek to unpick a series of some of the most momentous moments that we find in all of human history. So let's look then at the first momentous moment I believe we find here, and it is the beating. The beating and humiliation of Jesus ordered here by Pilate, verse 1 to 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him with a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the face. Now, I think it's helpful to understand here 
is that, that within the Roman justice system, there were three different levels of beating that could be meted out. First, there was the fustigatio, a comparatively less severe beating handed out for relatively trivial offenses such as, as hooliganism. Yes, it seems that they existed even then. And usually this was accompanied by a, a severe warning as to future behavior and what would happen if you stepped out of line again. And then there was the flagellatio. And this was a brutal flogging given as punishment for more serious or for repeated offenses. This is what you got if you stepped out of line once more. Finally, there was the verberatio. And this was the most brutal flogging imaginable, and one that was always associated, always part of crucifixion. And what happened with this is that the victim was stripped and then tied to a post. And they were then savagely beaten by several Roman soldiers. The whip they used was made of leather thongs that was fitted with spikes or chains made of bone or metal. And this torture continued either until the torturers dropped down, exhausted, or until their commanding officer called them off. And eyewitness accounts from the time tell us that these beatings could leave a victim's bones and their entrails exposed. Not surprisingly, a significant number of those who were brutalized in this way actually died before they were crucified. But you see, I think if we put together the, the accounts that we have of Jesus' trial before Pilate and also his trial before the Jews, both here in John and in the other Gospels, then what seems likeliest to me is that Jesus was actually beaten twice. The first beating was the less brutal beating, but still brutal, the fustigatio. And it's this, I believe, that's actually spelled out for us here in John, but it's hinted at in the other Gospels. With the more severe beating, the verberatio, after Pilate's final attempt to have Jesus pardoned by the Jews, being what is focused on more in the other Gospels. But that is covered by John, I think, in his general comment in verse 16, where he said, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. But all the other indignities that were piled on Jesus, the, the crown of thorns, the staff thrust into his hand as a parody of a, a royal Roman scepter, the mockery, hail, king of the Jews, the repeated punches, slaps, the spitting in his face, the taking of the staff and striking Jesus on the head with it, as Matthew tells us, sorry, Mark tells us, Mark 15, 19, again and again and again. All this took place split between these two beatings. But what, though, was the reason for this? Why did Pilate bother with this first beating? Why didn't he just go straight to the crucifixion with all the various different brutalities that were associated with it? Well, because Pilate wanted to give the Jews, dominated by their corrupt leadership, one last chance to choose Jesus. One last chance to set Jesus free. And so here he, he presents Jesus, beaten and humiliated, with the crown of thorns on his head, which 
Experts tell us it was probably made of thorns from the date plant, thorns which can grow up to 12 inches in length, which when pressed down on Jesus' head would in one sense have made a, an impressive imitation of a royal crown. It would have been like the kind of crown of a sun, sun king, if you like, with its beams radiating out from it. But also can you imagine the agony of having those 12-inch thorns pressed and pushed down into your head. So Jesus is there, beaten and abused. Crown of thorns on his head, purple robe wrapped round him. Other uh, gospels actually say it was a red robe. But you see, as a purple dye was extracted at this time from shellfish and was very expensive, what I think is most likely here is that this was actually a very dark red piece of cloth. It was probably some ragged sheet or something like that. And again, just used as a parody of the purple robe that was worn then by the Caesars and the aristocracy. And Pilate once more then makes his plea. I find no basis for a charge against him. Basically, let me set him free. And then he presents Jesus with a flourish. Here is the man. Fundamentally, he's making a fool of Jesus. In one book that I read, it said that you could almost say Pilate was presenting Jesus as a clown. This broken, weak, somewhat ridiculous man, this powerless man, he's mocking Jesus, he's laughing at Jesus, and he's inviting them to do the same. You know, we all know that Jesus suffered unbelievably at the cross, the physical suffering we've already said something about. And yet even this agony of agonies was dwarfed by the spiritual suffering Christ endured there. That, that as he took our sin upon him on that cross, that this led to that moment in time when the, the perfect fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken. As he was covered in our sin, and the agony of what that meant for Jesus to suffer that separation is captured for us by his cry from the cross in Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he knew why. Because he had our sin upon him. But you know, let's not at the same time underestimate the emotional pain suffered by Jesus. Here at this very moment, in John's gospel. As here he's basically wheeled out to be laughed at, sneered at, mocked and ridiculed. And that's a pain that every person feels deeply. But again here in this series of incidents, in this moment here, we see again what we've frequently spoken of and we've seen in John's gospel. And that's the way that John loves to present us with, with double meanings, different layers of meanings, flavored with a heavy dose of irony. So as the Roman soldiers, in their minds, mock and humiliate Jesus as they cry out, Hail, King of the Jews. But you see, here they actually speak the truth. But it's one that's beyond their understanding and denied by the Jews. And as Pilate continues the mocking with his words here, here is the man. That is, he's saying, how could you see this man, 
a man so helpless and weak. How could you possibly see this man as a danger, as a threat, as a king? But yet again, this time, Pilate's words are true in a way that he could never have imagined. For indeed, here is the man. The perfect man. The God-man. Doing what only he could. Living a perfect life and then giving it on our plate, in our, on our behalf, on the cross. As a man, taking our sin, paying the penalty of our sin. Standing, hanging there for us. Donald Carson, he says here, all the witnesses were too blind to see it at the time. But this man was displaying his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, in the very disgrace, pain, weakness, and brutalization that Pilate advanced as suitable evidence that he was a judicial irrelevance. But that's the first momentous moment we find here in this passage in John's Gospel. The beating, this beating in all its aspects that Jesus endured there for us. The next momentous moment is their conversation. The conversation, that is, that takes place between Jesus and Pilate back within the palace. After the Jewish hierarchy and their cronies have, have rejected G, uh, Pilate's plea to set an innocent Jesus free. Now, now this conversation and their retreat back into the palace is, is prompted by the Jewish response to this plea of Pilate. Verse 7, the Jews insisted, we have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Now, you see here, the Jews, frustrated by Pilate's continued reluctance to crucify Jesus, and annoyed, no doubt, by his, his constant underlying mockery of them, telling them to take Jesus, crucify him yourself, but all the while knowing that they didn't have the power to do so, that that power belonged to Rome alone. So their exasperation leads them to share with Pilate the real reason why they want Jesus put to death. Because he claimed to be the Son of God. And this we're told in verse 8 makes Pilate even more afraid. Now, I don't think we should read too much into that. That somehow, that here Pilate somehow gained insight into the true nature of Jesus. Now, but obviously, he'd already sensed in his dealings with Jesus that this man was unique. So as the Jewish leadership shared the claim that Jesus made that so offended them that he was the, the son of God, well, I think that we have to view this from the perspective, not of Judaism, certainly not of, of Christianity, but of Pilate's first century pagan mindset. You see, a Roman like Pilate believed in, in many gods, and they believed in, in semi-divine godlike beings who came to this earth and then interacted with humans. Why, in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas were on the receiving end of this when following a, a healing, the inhabitants of Lystra decided that they were God, something that they, they quickly, you know, put right. So what we have here then isn't the reaction of a man who, who's perhaps 
slowly emerging to true faith. Now, what this actually is, is the irrational fear of a superstitious man. But what this leads to, and this is what is important, is this further conversation between Pilate and Jesus back in in Pilate's headquarters, if you like. At first in this conversation, notice Jesus is silent. He refuses to answer Pilate's question. But what this leads to is the key moment here, I believe, where Jesus and Pilate engage in a conversation that's all about power and authority and responsibility. For Jesus' silence exasperates, even enrages Pilate. Pilate, this weak man pretending to be strong, this man who's so conscious and proud of the fact that in Israel that he wields the power of the all-conquering Roman Empire. So verse 10 he says, Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Basically, it's it's a case of, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who this is speaking to you here? Which leads to Jesus letting Pilate know where true power and authority, where ultimate power and authority actually lie. Verse 11, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Now, it's clear what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying is that all the evil men have done in bringing him to the cross is held within the hand of God and is weaved into his sovereign purposes. Now, this doesn't mean that that these people aren't responsible. It doesn't mean that because God doesn't force them to do these things. They do them of their own choice and volition. But what this certainly does mean is that there is nothing that mankind There is nothing that this world can do that can derail God's perfect purposes. But that reference to responsibility, I think, touches on an interesting point that's made by Jesus in this conversation with Pilate. An interesting point, and it's there again in verse 11, where Jesus says, Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Now, it seems to me to be relatively clear what Jesus is saying here. And that is that the one who actively handed Jesus over to Pilate, the one who schemed against Jesus and who orchestrated his arrest, this man, that is Caiaphas, the high priest, this man bears a greater burden of responsibility and of guilt in relation to the fate of Jesus than does Pilate, whose role was relatively passive. Now, now this doesn't mean that Pilate is off the hook. It doesn't. Because here he does play politics. Here he does condemn an innocent man to horrific death for his own political purposes. And he does allow Jesus here to be humiliated and brutalized. He's not off the hook. But still, Jesus does tell us here that Caiaphas is more guilty is guilty of a greater sin than Pilate. Now, I do hope here that I'm not guilty of reading too much into this, but I have to say I do think that this at least challenges the view that all sin is sin. 
You know that every sin is judged exactly the same and that every sinner will receive exactly the same judgment. I'm not convinced of that. For instance, is someone who's guilty of the sin of occasional gossip just as much a sinner as someone like Hitler who perpetrated genocide, mass murder, the slaughter of millions upon millions? And while all those who die without putting their faith in Christ's death on the cross for their sin, while they'll all face judgment on their own behalf then for their sin, and the baseline will be that this will be a terrible judgment, that those who've rejected God, rejected His offer of love in this life, will because of that rejection, will because of their choice, that will mean that they face an eternity of separation from God and His love and from everything that is good. But within this, as there will be, I believe, various degrees of appropriate rewards for the people of God, will there also be degrees of fitting judgment beyond the baseline for those who have rejected our God? Statements such as this made by Jesus here lead me to believe that there may well be. And personally, it seems to me to be fitting. It seems to me to be appropriate that people guilty of extreme evil should face a greater degree of punishment. Well, we've covered two momentous moments in this passage, the beating, their conversation. Let's move on to our third one, our representative. Now, where this begins to be seen, I believe, is in the silence of Jesus before Pilate, recorded here in verse 10, and also his silence when he was questioned by Caiaphas earlier in this, recorded in Mark 14, 60 and 61. So why was Christ silent at points in his trial? What does this symbolize? What's this saying? What does this point to? To understand this, I think we have to grasp what the actual charges were that were brought against Jesus. The charges brought against him by the Jewish authorities in Mark 14, 60-64, the charge there was blasphemy, that he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Son of God. Then the charge that cunningly the Jews were maneuvered into focusing him here in John's Gospel, the charge here was that of treason, that Jesus was setting himself up as a king in opposition to Caesar. So, why does Jesus, at points in the trials in the Gospels, remain silent? Why did he remain silent? Not because he was guilty but because we are guilty. Bruce Milne says here, precisely these two perversions are at the heart of all human sinning. Genesis 3 unveils it clearly. Sin is blasphemy. You will be like God, Genesis 3, 5. The essence of sin lies in man's pretension to be God. But further, Sin is treason, an act of rebellion 
against God's rightful rule. And the famous Scottish theologian of an earlier generation, P.T. Forsyth, he adds here that as a race, we are not even stray sheep or wandering prodigals merely. We are rebels, taken with the weapons in our hands. There then, at his trial, Jesus stood in our place. And he was silent because we are guilty. And he took the judgment that was ours. He took the punishment that was ours. And he did it all because he loves us. In order to set us free from sin, from judgment, from death, from all the powers of evil. And in order to bring us back into that place where we can know a relationship with a loving God who wants to bless us and to glorify himself in us and through our lives. You know, verses from the Bible and lines from hymns come into my mind and sure many of your minds also at a point like this. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Well, we've looked at three momentous moments from this passage. The beating, their conversation, our representative. Let's look finally at the verdict. And there are various verdicts here that we could focus on. Primarily, of course, the final verdict of Pilate on Jesus. For Pilate's continued resistance to deliver this final verdict eventually brings the Jewish leadership to the point where they stop hinting at it and finally make their so far veiled threats against Pilate explicit. Verse 12, the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Any man who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. See, what they're saying is, if you let Jesus go, we'll make sure that word gets back to Rome. We'll make sure that word gets back to Caesar, that you let a threat against him, a rebel against him, go unchecked and unpunished. But, you know, there, there may well be even more threatening undertones to what's said here. Because, you see, at this time, friend of Caesar was actually an honorary title that was given by Caesar to specially favored and specially selected individuals. And Roman historic sources tell us that, that Pilate had received this title as the result of his connections with one Sejanus. And he was an, a, an official, a Roman official, who was close to the emperor, who had the emperor's ear. But you see, just moment, months before this, Sejanus had fallen out of favor. And he and many of his supporters had been executed. So as a result of all of this then, it's probable that Pilate's fate and position was already under discussion in Rome. And a negative comment received about him at, in Rome at this time might well have been the final nail in Pilate's coffin. So were the Jews here, by their choice of words, 
letting Pilate know that they were aware of this? Were they reminding him of just how precarious his position actually was? It seems likely, I believe. The result, anyway, of, of these words were immediate. They brought Pilate to the judgment seat to produce his verdict on Jesus and condemn him to crucifixion. But there's another verdict here, though, that I want to focus on. And this is found in the Jewish reaction to Pilate's final attempt to humiliate them and provoke them as he presents Jesus again to them as their king. Verse 14 and on. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king. But Caesar, the chief priest, answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Just listen again to that reaction of the Jews. We have no king but Caesar. Now you see, what we need to realize here is that these words cried out in anger by the chief priests. These words are a breaking of God's sacred covenant with Israel. For at the heart of that covenant was the understanding that God is king over all mankind, but in a special way over Israel, his people. And this was something that Israel had held on to, even during their trials, even during their backsliding. Still at the very heart of the nation, there was always an understanding, a remnant of a commitment to the fact that their God was king, that he was Lord. So despite the other nations that at times ruled over the land, yet still in the heart of the nation, in the heart of Israel, the Lord is king. Isaiah 26, 13, I think sums it up. O Lord, our God, other lords but you have ruled over us. But your name alone do we honor. But you see here, that covenant is broken. Here Israel, represented by their priests, chooses Caesar, chooses this world to be their king, to be first in their lives rather than the Lord. And I believe that since that time, Israel has been under God's verdict, under God's judgment. And that, I believe, will continue until we stand on the verge of the return of Christ, when then, as Romans 11 suggests, there will be a great turning of the Jews back to God through faith in Christ. That's God's verdict. That's God's judgment on Israel because they turned their back on Jesus and so turned their back on him. But what about us? Who today are we going to choose? And as a result of that, what's God's verdict on us? What's that verdict going to be? Are we going to choose Caesar? Are we going to choose this world? Are we going to seek to live a life that's independent of God? Are we going to live as if this world and what it offers 
or all that there is? Or are we going to choose Jesus? Are we going to see Him for who He is, the Son of God who loves us and died for our sin? Are we going to choose Him, choose faith in Him, and live for His glory? Nothing matters more than this. Because it's on this that God's verdict, God's judgment depends. Choose this world and we face an eternity of separation from God, from His love, and from all that is good. Choose Jesus and we will enjoy God's presence, God's blessing, now and forever. Israel made the wrong choice. Don't make the same mistake tonight as them. Choose Jesus. Choose love. Choose life. Choose joy. Choose peace. Choose God's power and God's presence now and forever. Choose Him. Let's come and pray. Father, we just want to praise You for all that we see there in that trial of Jesus for all that was symbolized, for all that was pointed to, for the spiritual battle that was going on, and for Jesus, who in it all was the glorious victor, always sure of his place in your purpose, always obedient, always yielded to you. Father, may we look to Jesus, may we choose Jesus, and may we then follow Jesus as our Lord all the days of our life. This we pray now. In his name, amen.